Welcome to Psyched for Business, helping business leaders understand and apply cutting-edge business psychology principles in the workplace. Hi, and welcome to Psyched for Business. I'm Richard Anderson, and in today's episode, I'm talking to Christian Lees-Bell. Christian is a business psychologist who's an expert in stress management. In this episode, we get into the ins and outs of what stress is, why it happens, and what are the best tips and tricks to mitigate stress in and out the workplace. Thanks for listening. Christian, welcome to the show. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on. How are you doing? Yeah, really well, thanks, uh, Richard. Yeah, glad to be on the show as well. Your time's greatly appreciated. We're going to talk about a very interesting subject. So you're obviously, Christian, a business psychologist. You specialize in stress management and, and mental fitness. We're going to get into the ins and outs of stress, stress in the workplace, how we go about mitigating, reducing, becoming aware of stress. And I think probably a good question to start with is when I think of stress, I think maybe somebody who's maybe struggling to sleep at night, maybe can't get to sleep because they've got so much on the mind. Maybe they've become irate, maybe a little bit distant from from people. But I guess there's a, a number of physical and mental manifestations that occur with stress. I mean, what, what would you say are the typical ones and what are the telltale signs to maybe look out for with somebody who, who has stress or is suffering with, with excess stress? It's difficult actually to talk about what effects there aren't or what effects are not related to stress because, you know, as we'll talk about probably a little bit later, there are just so many, you know, physical symptoms and indicators that you're struggling with stress. We all experience stress from, from time to time. You'll be aware, uh, Richard, of that sort of that phrase, the fight or flight response, that stress can have its upsides. It can mobilize our energy and our resources and get us ready to be prepared for certain things and stresses or things that could potentially be challenging to us. The problem comes when we feel unable to deal with those or, as I say, the sort of our abilities, our resources just don't match up to the challenge. And so what we have, what we see then is, you know, sometimes symptoms that can be physical. So I suppose the most obvious, one of the few, the the obvious symptoms linked to stress, we call that comorbidity. So when we've got physical symptoms that coexist and coincide with and interact actually with stress. So that could be, for example, headaches, attention headaches, things or existing conditions like asthma, skin conditions that you'll be aware of that will actually be made worse or can be exacerbated by that high level of stress. So physical symptoms, there are lots and lots of those. So for example, if you've got IBS, then people will find that their IBS symptoms are made worse by if they're you know undergoing quite a lot of stress at the time. We can also think about, I suppose, mental and cognitive impacts of stress. So for example, your thinking often is not as clear when we're stressed. We panic. So we have, we're probably more worried. We ask ourselves in our head the questions like, okay, you know, what am I going to do? We might sort of visualize in the future about things that could go wrong. So that stress kind of starts that sort of worry and anxiety sort of from getting going, basically. So it's the precursor of a lot of that. You're talking about the anxiety sometimes that actually might stop you sleeping. There's definitely worry there as well. And also behavioral things. Maybe you find yourself doing certain habits, drinking too much or relying on certain medications or just certain bad habits that you have. And you might find that you do those things more often when you're stressed you might rely on them too much. We saw that over, for example, lockdown, where people who had a bit of a habit of you know, drinking too much or smoking too much or overeating, and I'm probably you know, a victim of that as much as that. Uh, and me, Christian, and me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I ended up probably for a period of time doing more of that because I suppose my brain saw the chocolate bar as a, uh, as a bit of a comfort thing. 
it's pretty much unique to each one of us. We all, we all maybe do different things and challenges or, or how we exhibit stress is exacerbated when that stress is, is higher. It's interesting. So you talked before, and this is a topic that I do find hugely interesting, this whole notion of fight or flight response. And stress is initially or originally built to be a pr- protection mechanism. Is that a fair question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. When you're experiencing stress of that initial surge of those physical symptoms of getting ready, that fight or flight response, your, we call your sympathetic nervous system is activated. So for example, your adrenaline levels go up, focus can, you know, be sort of almost tunnel visioned into sort of like attending to something which might be a threat, something that you really need to deal with, whether that's a deadline or, you know, say the tooth tiger. So your adrenaline, your focus, heart rate, blood pressure, that can actually be quite mobilizing, can be helpful, can't it? Your heart beats faster to encourage you to run faster away from that saber-toothed tiger. And if you didn't have that, you'd be in big trouble. You know, so as you say, protective mechanism, yeah, absolutely essential. The science says that when we're in that sympathetic system and when we're when we're sort of like on high alert, I suppose, in some ways, that can that's really important for our for our safety, for getting things done as well. It helps us to mobilize our focus, determination, drive. So that's it's essential. But we need to also sort of have some time to sort of reset, to recover, and to sort of switch that off temporarily so you can like just chill out as well. And the reality is obviously in 2022, we're not running away from saber-toothed tigers and hunter-gatherers and all that sort of stuff where we've got comparatively, I guess, easy lives. Yeah, but we, on paper. You know, yeah, on paper, is. yeah. On paper, of course, of course. So in terms of the workplace, do you feel that we're experiencing more stress as workers now or is it because we've we've become more aware of these things it's a good question it's quite a complicated question and i think to, to answer that i think we can probably have a look back over the last couple of years i think we're moving on a little bit from conversation about things like anxiety and stress over covid but i think it's definitely still plays a part so i think we're more people are more stressed in the workplace i think the data i suppose coming out of um some of the major studies from CIPD, for example, the HR organization, Deloitte do some really good, um, some pieces on well-being every year, and also the Stevenson and Pharma review, which are also really good for, for managers and people to look at. Some of the, the data that's come out of, of those quite recently suggests that it is very individual. It's very context-based. But yeah, in, in some people and some organizations and some situations are experiencing more stress, some industries, for example, certain certain groups of people. I think in terms of well-being, we're not back to pre-pandemic levels. It seems as though as as actually a population in the UK, we're not as happy, we're not as content, and we're probably more stressed than we were pre-pandemic. But actually, interesting, the data shows that even up to the pandemic, we were sort of struggling. So it wasn't quite as, as optimistic and as positive as it was years before that. And stress levels, yeah, you're right, have been increasing over the years. Whether they've increased... Post-COVID, I think that, you know, it still remains to be seen. But I think the stigma is still is still there, absolutely. I think, as you say, you talked about awareness, and I think that's a really good point in that um, a lot of it is due to the fact that people are, I suppose, expecting more from workplaces, so therefore they will be talking more about their challenges. They'll be opening up more because there's more awareness there. Uh, organizations have to have, they have no choice but to, really provide more resources and support than they'd done previously. And that's across the board. So that's been really good. But I think there's still, yeah, it's definitely still a lot to do there. It's funny because you you think or you would assume that 
post-pandemic, obviously the world of work has changed. People have often have the ability to work very flexibly. They can work almost where they want, when they want. And you might assume, therefore, that people might be less stressed. But I guess it's it's not as simple as that because for me, for example, that wouldn't do me any good working working from anywhere. I need to I need to be with people. That's that's one of the things that, that that's hugely important for me. And I wonder to that point when we talk about the pandemic and the fact that we were almost or we were forced to lock down and we were forced to essentially work from home. Did that have a, a hugely negative impact on a lot of people? I, I know it did for me. You talked about overeating before. That's too much drinking, and I did both of those things. Yeah, for for for, for majority of people. I mean, I, I even did surveys myself when I was doing training and delivering webinars, and it was quite interesting actually. In the first couple of months of lockdown, because we were doing a lot of Zoom training, I asked people, "So how how did they feel about their mental health?" About seventy five percent of of people. I mean, it wasn't a massive sample, but you know, a couple of hundred said that their well being had been adversely affected through the lockdown, and it continued to be so. I mean, interestingly, there were there were about twenty percent of people who said it was actually good for their mental health. So there was probably a bit of novelty there, the idea and the possibility of have, having a more flexible sort of home arrangement for some people actually improved their well being. But I think for the large majority, anxiety levels went up. Uh, at the beginning of COVID, actually sort of tailed off after about a year or so. And then depression became actually more predominant, which is quite interesting. But I think for a lot of people, yeah, the anxiety levels definitely went up. Stress levels went up. People were more worried and concerned, really, about, I suppose, what, what's going to happen? What's going to happen with my job? Or how am I going to work out how to work effectively remotely? Or how am I going to look after people that I need to look after? And that was actually another thing that came out of the research is, not many people had that same sort of level of um, sort of confidence and support when they were maybe taking up, look, looking after people at home or taking care of loved ones. And loneliness, again, was a big uh, factor as well, particularly in the early parts of lockdown. And I guess if it, it's something that goes on for quite some time, you talk about well, what's going to happen next. It's those what if questions that we know about when we're, we're suffering with stress and anxiety. If that happens for a long time, I guess, does it become habitual? Is that is that just the way of life then that you, you've automatically stressed so much that it becomes something that's not very easily to get back to normal levels of stress? Absolutely. So for a, for a lot of people, and the research sort of backs this up, I believe, is that if you're, if you're experiencing or chronic stress is, is, is linked to a lot of other you know, mental health um, issues. So for example, they're often comorbid with anxiety. I see clients one-to-one and it's very, very rare that I actually get somebody for specifically for stress. It'll often be maybe they're feeling very anxious, whether it's panic attacks or OCD, PTSD, you know, post-traumatic syndrome as well. That was quite and still is a big challenge even for organizations as well, for key workers, you know, experience that in some cases. So that chronic stress, inability to sort of rest and recharge, particularly if people were had higher workloads, they were juggling lots of different things, you know, work-life balance was harder as well. So you've got all these demands. And so if that continues, then and there's no there's no respite for that. People are not sort of practicing self-care. Then, yeah, you can get sort of mental health issues coming along, you know, physical sort of problems as well, musculoskeletal, you know, sort of things like backaches. And all of that sort of went, you know, really increased over lockdown as well. And, and even now, when I spoke to my physio, he's, yeah, he says, well, that's yeah, a lot of that is is the stress or people working from home, for example, not taking care of themselves. And do you find on the work, in terms of how work relates to stress, would you say it's the most common factor when it comes to, to stress among the majority of people who suffer from it? 
So work, because of your job, because of the challenges at work, does that cause more stress than stress at home, for example? When we sort of work with people who are experiencing stress at work, I'd say most of that is stress to do with things like workload. Workload's the number one factor still. Relationship with your boss, line manager, again, always comes up, working style. So when people talk about being stressed, yeah, often if they're at work, then you know, it's, it's very much the case that they um, are really finding actually stuff, some of those working demands or culture, you know, very much a problem. But again, it's, it's rare that they, they're also not going to be affected with home stresses. So in actual fact, for some people, it might be the stress of home or challenges at home or something, whether it's an illness in the family, anxiety about their health. That's often actually more sort of prevalent for people, even if they're experiencing stress at work. It's often the home stuff that's actually really um, probably more immediate. But, you know, these things, they sort of feed into each other. So if you're experiencing stress at home, then again, you sort of you feed that into work and that makes work more challenging and what makes work more, more difficult because you've got less energy to deal with it. So it's, it's difficult to sort of really separate the two, I think. And I guess it's maybe a self-fulfilling cycle almost that you're stressed at home, which makes you become stressed at work. Definitely, yeah. We've all got sort of limited resources. Of course we have. So are there any roles or industries in your experience, Christian, that do suffer with stress more than others? Yes, definitely. I mean, some of the organizers, some of the industries that I work with suffer a lot of stress. Um, For example, customer services. So not necessarily industry, but obviously the sales departments, customer service based, probably fairly obvious to to sort of work out why. But particularly with those roles where people were dealing sort of with customers on the phone, actually, or online, just with the volume of calls, the volume of demand, particularly over COVID and, and even now at times as well, things like shortages having to sort of like still remain polite, still remain professional when they were might be they were working at home on a screen, maybe in an environment which isn't ideal or conducive to actually being sort of efficient or feeling sort of positive and dealing with sort of pretty challenging customers at the best of times. And obviously when people are stressed, particularly over lockdown and especially even now as well, when we've got sort of like these worries about sort of financial concerns and cost of living what's going on with the government, all of these things uh, sort of can sort of raise our collective stress. And people in those sales and customer services roles, I suppose, are kind of indirectly getting uh, the brunt of that stress, the stress of the stress, you know. Customer service and sales, typically those areas that suffer with most. Yeah, I suppose they're particular departments and roles. I suppose if you're looking at types of organisations and industries, I'm even looking at, for example, the public sector versus a private sector. Public sector organisations generally, particularly the, the, the really big ones, tend to report higher levels of stress across the board. Not always the case. Looking at sort of the health departments as well, sort of the health industry and, and all the health organisations, again, like NHS, for example, makes sense that they, they've experienced or people have experienced a lot of stress. Key workers, for example, there's a lot of instances of burnout in those organisations where they haven't been on the phone, but they've actually been on the front lines. They've been sort of face-to-face and they haven't had that sort of recovery time. It really depends on those demands and, and the, the level of sort of control and flexibility the person has. In industries, they don't have as much flexibility and control over how they do their work than maybe perhaps other roles. And that's where the stress is, you know, particularly high. So as business leaders and 
team leaders and, and people responsible for, you know, duties of care for employees, how do we go about, I suppose, recognizing that people are stressed? And I suppose we can get into the tips and tricks. But the reason I ask that question about how we recognize it is because it's very, very difficult. You, you talk right at the beginning about different manifestations of stress in different people, but people are good at hiding these things, aren't they? And it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. So what would be the, the, the first thing that you would recommend for business leaders to, to go about, I suppose, recognizing those, those signs of stress among the team? I think probably the first thing, and this would be the same for, for individuals as well, would be the awareness piece. So really making sure that People managers, those who are actually across the board, but particularly that people managers, line managers are are more aware. So increase their knowledge about what the indicators would be and might be. When we're talking about that, it's again, it's sort of signs and symptoms. And again, it could be different for, for different people, but with certain types of mental health issues, for certain kinds of struggle, there are patterns. So it's really useful. It's actually really important for, particularly as a lot of people are working remotely. And as you say, you can't, they, they, you don't have the same opportunities to be able to notice the signs and changing behaviors. But there are things you can do. So awareness of, I suppose, some of the mental health risks, changes in behavior and habits, the way people think, how that might change, what to look out for in terms of maybe their work output. But doing that in a way that's not big brother, but is, I suppose, is monitoring with consent and with cooperation, but finding out if there's been a change in working output or work quality, in particular, people who are really struggling with their mental health tend, first of all, to keep up the volume of work, but they find that the quality of that work declines. Over more time, obviously, the quantity will be declining as well, but that's often a pattern. So if managers um, and organizations know about some of these things, they can, uh, can definitely mit- mitigate it and also um, then start to think about training managers about what to know and to, to actually to, yeah, to prevent that and to, to deal with it. So I think awareness is, is, is absolutely massive there. And obviously training is a part of that. And also self-awareness is, I suppose, for individuals. So if you're a manager, you've got a big responsibility to well, there's a big opportunity to be able to support your team with their mental health. But managers are really stressed at the moment. They're probably the most stressed. It's all right just talking about supporting other people, but they've got to also maybe be more self-aware of their own indicators. So how do their behaviors change? You know, where do, do their, does their heart rate go up when they feel stressed? Do they not take breaks when they're really stressed because they're worried about not completing things? So knowing about our own triggers and actually managing those is again a really important way to start sort of the process of helping other people. Absolutely, I think um, self care is a hugely important thing, and I think when you talk about being aware, Christian, it's it's a it's a really interesting thing because although I have a very baseline level of knowledge when it comes to things like stress and anxiety, and I've you know I've been through probably both, certainly both at times in the past. I haven't been hugely knowledgeable about the signs and the symptoms every time. And sometimes I just think, well, this is normal. This is how everybody is. But that's probably not the case. I have a question relating to to sales. So I'll give you a direct example. So when I was in my early 20s, I started a career in sales. And I've always pretty much worked in sales. I think I was pretty good at it. I mean, I was all, I was okay. I always got decent feedback. You know, I felt like I was a good, uh, good communicator, good listener. But one of the things that I really, really struggled with in sales was the target, the number on my head. That was the the, the biggest challenge. 
So how do we strike a balance between clearly a business needs a salesperson to hit a number and clearly if a salesperson is happy and not stressed, they've got more chance of hitting that number. But ultimately, it's, it's up to me to manage my own stress levels, but I still need to hit, hit the number. So I, I guess what I'm asking is, how can a business nurture somebody's natural talents, but be very aware that they might struggle with certain elements of the job very specifically? Is there any tips and tricks for, for an individual like me who might have been good at sales, but was constantly stressed about, about hitting that number? Sure, it's not just you. I mean, sales is one of those industries where certain targets and, and having to hit the numbers can be quite brutal. I think for organizations, it's one of the first steps. And one good tip is, as you've just said, it's sort of to really to actually to get to know and to spend time with that salesperson to actually understand where their strengths and potential weaknesses lie. Sometimes that could just be a lack of knowledge of the product or a confidence issue. And therefore, that means that that's adding extra sort of pressure and sort of perceived stress as well. And, and that sort of makes it harder to sort of meet the challenges of those targets. One-to-one support is something that when I've consulted in uh, sort of customer service or sales-based organizations, you'd be surprised at the amount of teams that you know have a process for one-to-one support, one-to-one coaching, but maybe when it gets really busy, when they really hit, need to sort of hit target, when they're sort of coming up to the end of a, you know, a, a quarter, that falls to the wayside. So that sort of one-to-one conversation sort of slips by. So I think it's this, the support of the, the sales manager or the coach is really, really key, I think, particularly for new salespeople to build confidence and to actually make sure that they set sort of you know, specific goals and don't get too overwhelmed. But also, let's be honest, sometimes, you know, demands, sometimes sales targets can be across the board, you know, uh, sometimes pretty re- unrealistic at times in some organizations. That's happened, I'm sure, many times. And I suppose, you know, if you've got a team that, you know, 90% of them think it's unrealistic, and even some of the top performers, if asked, would say, yeah, that's an unrealistic target, or I've, I've very, I've hardly reached that target, then that highlights a problem with, the way work is organized and that the actual targets itself that's one of you know one of the key factors for work stress that can exacerbate it is demands the amount of demand so work demands how work's organized the environment so if that person perceives or thinks those demands are consistently too much i suppose it doesn't always matter whether the work demands are actually too much they might still experience stress and performance deficit if they think or perceive it's just too high. So I think you'd want to really explore, okay, well, have you ever hit the target? In what way is it, is it, is it too much? Looking at the whole team and whether those targets have been consistently met or, or met sort of enough times by everybody. So it needs a bit of a nuanced approach there. So it's not always the case that, yeah, the targets are unrealistic. But to be honest, I have been in teams where uh, across the board, people sort of have a negative perception of the targets, which is going to reduce you know, motivation. I love what you're talking about relating to the coaching and the one-to-one stuff. And I've had that, of course, in the past. I think a lot of this was probably down to me, but I think it's maybe the responsibility of business leaders to create that environment or that culture where you can be open and honest about the things that you're, you're struggling with. Because I have to say, for me, I would have thought it would have been a sign of weakness. You know, if I was to admit that I'm struggling with, not even struggling to hit the number because, you know, I, I was hitting the number. I'm saying I've always hit the number, but the majority of times I would have hit the number. It was just the thought of not hitting the number. And, and it was probably a base level of stress that I might have, or certainly at the time, higher than, than maybe the average person possibly. Again, highlighting coaching there is a really important thing, I think, for all businesses. 
So, Christian, I know that you were talking about managers before, but what are maybe some of the, the tips and tricks that you would advise or give to managers to, to help reduce or eliminate stress in, in their teams? I've been focusing on stress management in organisations for um, a good few years now, and it's, it's managers, I think, where there's still a gap in terms of knowledge, confidence, and some of the tools available. We've talked about people and organisations becoming more aware of mental health and, and well-being, which is great. But in some of the recent surveys I've seen, particularly where HR and people managers have been asked about whether managers or their managers are confident actually helping other people and supporting their teams, the general sort of idea seems to be that there's, there's definitely still, for many organisations, a gap there, a gap in knowledge, a gap in confidence in particular. But the will is definitely there. So. What I would suggest, first of all, is is to have a, uh, a framework and not to have something which is completely overwhelming because there's so many things that you, you could do in terms of well-being and mental health as a manager. There's so much stuff online. There's a wealth of information, isn't there now? Almost too much. The way I work with managers is actually through a, a quite a simple four-part um, pr- framework, which was actually developed by a good friend of mine, Alan Bradshaw. We work together actually on this a, a lot of the time. We've been using it in organisations to train managers in terms of what they need to know and do. So the four parts really are quite simple. So I think it's really important for managers to increase their awareness. When I talk about awareness, it's about understanding the mental health impact of um, some of the current challenges of COVID and the aftermath of that, particularly sort of remote working, loan working, and even and, and the hybrid type of working that many of us are involved in. It's important for managers to know what are the the, some of the risks, the psychological risks that those things actually uh, pose. We talk about things like the psychological snippets, so things that us psychologists know from positive psychology, things like self-efficacy, emotional contagion, some of the really, really important psychological snippets of the last like 10, 20 years, and just condense that so, so managers understand why might people be struggling. If there's um, a lot of uncertainty and people are struggling with their finances, how does that actually play into sort of possible mental health and stress, for example? We've got sort of a rough idea, but just getting being armed with some of the just a simple psychological theories, practical things, it just gives them a context, so I think, which is really important. And I think it's also important for managers to know about three types of risks. Health risks, which we talked about a little bit. So how does stress and mental health actually affect the physical body? How does it affect behaviours? How does it affect actually things like musculoskeletal issues, things that they can actually notice as managers? Business risks as well. So actually managers to know about actually what sort of things to notice as a result of of high levels of stress, whether we're talking about stress-related absences, presenteeism. So just having a background knowledge of what sort of risk, business risks you might be actually facing. So the knowledge is really important there. And then also learning a little bit about um, some of the factors that are actually associated in the research with stress. One thing that comes up is very um, common in the UK is something called the management standards. So these are six standards or six factors that have been in the research tied to um, higher levels of stress. And, you know, we talked about things like working demands. So demands is one of those management standards that was developed from research by the health and safety executive. So demands is one, control, 
So how much control do we have over the environment? Managers need to know about the importance of that, giving their staff a, an element of control in their work. Support, social support and support from colleagues, line manager, that's another management standard, which is really, really key to stress and lowering it. Relationships, so it could be obviously the importance of healthy relationships or reducing conflict in relationships because that can sort of spike sort of levels of stress and anxiety if, it's, you know, if, there's, if there's conflict and fighting or bullying. And then the last two being role. So like, you know, how clear is the role? Do people know what they're doing? Do they know what their job entails? And then last of all, change. And we've had, you know, lots of that over the last couple of years. So organizational change, how's change communicated, for example, by the organization? Knowing these actually can also help managers categorize the kinds of stress that their team are facing. And there's lots of tools. Um, we go through them, some simple tools where they can actually categorize these kinds of stresses and understand them and, and help their team members to actually kind of work on them, but sort of knowing what kinds of stresses they are. The second part is prevention. So prevention is, is, is one big tip I'd give for, for, for managers and organizations in general. Still, we've got the problem of people sort of reacting to stress. Organizations providing support in terms of counseling support or an employee assistance program, which, is, which are important. They're important cogs in the wheel, but they're not the be all and end all. And actually preventative strategies that are actually focused on the particular challenges of the whole organization, the business unit or the team specifically, they're the ones that give you the best ROI. That's shown in you know, a lot of the research as well. You, know, you get more bang for your buck with focusing on preventative strategies. So, yeah, managers, if they know what kind of factors prevent to actually increase stress, they can think about, okay, how can we maybe adapt, improve some of those working practices, lighten the load or give my you know, employee a bit more flexibility in some ways, increase their control. That will reduce stress. That's, you know, even more powerful than what sort of somebody's already got it. Third part, I think this is really important, is monitoring. So again, it's not sort of monitoring big brother style, but it's monitoring with consent and with cooperation. So it's monitoring is about, okay, the knowledge, the skills of managers to know if they've got a concern or not with a, with a team member's well-being. How do they know if they've got a concern or not? This is where like knowing about the indicators and the signs and symptoms is really key here. If you know what to look out for, then you can actually notice some of those sustained changes in, in individuals. If you, if you really get to know your team members and if they trust you, if you build that level of trust, you've got a lot, of, a lot better chance of actually monitoring your team's well-being over time. That's really, really important. So monitoring, I think, is, is critical. And last but not least is responding. So once you've, you've, you have a cause for concern, what do you do with that information? So it's important for managers to actually have com sensitive conversations, to know how to do that. How can they prepare to have those conversations that's actually helpful for, for them and for their staff member? And then also what to do if, if, they, if they're not, they're not counsellors, uh, they can't solve the problem themselves necessarily, how to signpost. So, you know, do they have the knowledge to actually refer that person to the appropriate term support? There's an element of knowledge and skills and tools there, I think, that managers definitely, if using a, a, an approach like that, can definitely really help to sort of mitigate and prevent stress. So we call that the AP, APMR framework. So awareness, prevention, monitoring, responding. Really simple. Managers get it. 
Really interesting stuff, Christian. There's loads to unpack there. I love that as a framework. I mean, as you were going through, I was making a few notes. I think we talked about knowledge or awareness being such such an important factor. And 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 when you went through the six standards there, I was thinking, well, I'm definitely going to look into these because it's uh, it's it, it's definitely something that I would like to know more about. But I think when you talk about prevention, I guess from a business perspective, you talked before if if we can prevent it, we're going to save a huge amount of money in the longer term. Just just purely from a from from a business point of view as well. So one of the things I was keen to learn a little more about and, and talking about how you can have that, I suppose, that relationship with your staff where you're confident enough to have open dialogue and open conversations with them. But how do you do things tactfully in the sense that, you know, you might have a staff member that we talked before about overeating during the, the pandemic and, and going about that conversation with somebody where they normally wouldn't overeat, but the last thing you want to do is offend somebody. And I think that's a that particular topic is, a, is an example. So, so going about these things tactfully, that would be a really important thing and, and one that I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't know straight away how to do. No. Well, a lot of people don't. The most important thing when it comes to preventing mental health issues from actually, you know, from happening and to actually helping to protect or to support your team members the best is, is, is taking action and actually doing something about it if you really do have a concern. So I think what you said is, is very valid. I mean, I, but I think sometimes that sort of maybe a little bit of fear or uncertainty about actually broaching the subject or worrying about saying the right thing, I think that unfortunately can sometimes mean and has meant for some people that they haven't actually broached the subject or they haven't had that conversation or somebody else has had it. Maybe somebody who's, well, that's a mental health first aider, which would be a, which would be a positive thing if the organisation has somebody like that, but they might not. So I think that's a valid concern. I think the first thing is to remember that the most important thing is to do something about it. So if to, to take action if you do have a concern. That is the most important thing. Because there's also things like legal risks. And if, if you're not actually taking action or, or, or doing something about a concern that you have about that person's well-being, you're actually kind of potentially sort of making you and your company liable for, um, you know, obviously not taking sort of that, having that duty of care for, the, for that person. So that there is that as well. But I think more directly, planning is, is really important here. So it sounds really simple, but I would suggest that if you're fairly new to having those sensitive conversations, or if you're not sure what to say, I would suggest to allocate time for actually planning for that particular conversation. I'd also suggest getting, getting as much data and information about that person's maybe the indicators and the signs and the things you've noticed before you have that conversation. So it's not, a, as you say, a spur of the moment, oh, you know, what, why is that? Or what are you doing about this? Or I've noticed you're doing that when you don't have the actual full picture. So your job as a manager actually is to sort of build up the picture by, I suppose, being getting as much information as you can or data about that person and then planning maybe what you could say, what sort of questions you could ask. And it could be as simple as saying, look, I've noticed that something and something specific that's actually happened. So you're sometimes you're um, you're logging off a little bit earlier than you, you used to do or, you know, the quality of your work has, has slipped a little bit and or make it something specific, you know, to do with work. And is there anything that, um, you know, you need support with? Is there anything that I can help with? And often that can actually get that person to to sort of open up. And remember, they might not necessarily have talked about this to anybody at work. It might open the floodgates to them actually just sort of feeling as if like, wow, you know, my manager actually has been taking care of, of me and actually noticing me. 
it's funny because it's probably even just an overthinking thing from the manager that might prevent them to have that difficult conversation. Yeah, yeah. they're thinking about yourself before the person. That's it, absolutely. You also mentioned when you were talking about the framework there, Christian, about being able to signpost. And as a manager, you're not a counsellor. I guess as a business coach, you're not a clinical therapist or, or counsellor as well. But where, do, where does it stop being a business issue and then become more of a, a I guess, a counsellor, therapy, clinical clinical issue and the, the line's slightly blur and where, where do they stop, stop blurring? This is why it's important that people managers have a good idea of maybe some of the support structures so they know sort of what kind of issues need extra support or what, how, what, what sort of organisations they can signpost their employees to. Because you're right, they're, they're not, um, and this includes mental health first aiders, wellbeing ambassadors, they're not counsellors. And even if they are counsellors outside of work, they're not counsellors at work. So they are mental health champions or they're managers. You're right. There is definitely a distinction there. I think a manager's, I suppose, focus should be on, they shouldn't shy away from sort of work stresses and uh, sorry, home sort of related sort of strains or worries or anxieties because that can affect work. But I think probably that first conversation is very much about sort of how it's affecting their day-to-day work. If that manager or that person feels uncomfortable they don't have that knowledge then they also should have the uh, the expertise and, and the knowledge to be able to signpost to know sort of like maybe internally there's somebody who could be the next step for that person to talk to maybe there's a certain allyship group or a support network in the organization mental health first aid it could be the next person who does have experience of a particular issue maybe or perhaps it's it's a simple case of knowing sort of is is there a, an employee assistance program is there an occupational health provider that you know they can actually provide counselling to? I think knowledge is really key here. And if they, if you don't feel comfortable or if you if you don't know, then it's to find out as much as you can that what's available or or, or ask as well. And the conversations you have with that person not might not necessarily just be one ten minute conversation. There could be a series of two or three to really get the full picture. But yeah, you're right. There are certain things that might come up in a conversation where you would definitely refer or uh, tell that person that you're going to refer so for example an obvious one is a suicide or mention of suicide because the the issues of things like confidentiality don't necessarily apply if um, you're talking to somebody or an employee and they mention you know obviously having an urge to to kill themselves or, or to commit suicide then it's a case of really knowing okay so telling that person you know that, that you'll need to uh, contact the emergency services in certain instances you know but you still need to know sort of what to do, what to ask, what information to sort of gather. Managers don't know that. They haven't had the training. So most of the normal, you know, people outside of work, they're not going to know either. So That's why this, this knowledge piece is so important and we keep on coming back to it. And it makes perfect sense why awareness is the first part of the framework there because it's, it, it's having people aware and knowledgeable about these things is so crucial. I do want to give you the opportunity to tell the listeners how you can support businesses using this this framework, of course. So how do you support organizations? What are the different types of services that, that you provide? Yeah, so I provide business psychology consultancy. So there's support for organizations in terms of stress and mental health support. That could involve quite a few things. So, you know, we've talked about uh, stress management today, um, and I think that's probably one of the key services on my specialism. So it's about consulting with organizations, supporting managers to be able to, to reduce and prevent stress. That could be around helping them develop policies, so stress policies or well-being sort of programs. 
which will help sort of, uh, you know, prevent those um, stresses and mental health issues from, from happening in the first place. It could be around one-to-one support as well. I know some companies who maybe have one particular person or a few people who are signed off from work with stress, for example. So we also provide support to get those people back to, to functioning well and, and feeling confident again once you know, they get back into the office. So and more specialised help for, for example, maybe anxiety or, or, or depression related issues as well, which could be you know, work or usually home related. But I think probably the main focus, um, what I spend most of my time with is management training. There's, there's still a gap there, I think, with for a lot of people. There's always more confidence and more knowledge. Um, things change as well in mental health. So there's a lot more talk now of people needing support for women for, for menopause, for example, for, for sleep issues, a disability for different groups. So you know, I also provide help for organisations to, I suppose, to support their managers to um, you know, get the best out of their teams. Christian, this is such an important topic. I've really enjoyed listening to, to the answers um, that you've given to my questions. I've learned a hell of a lot. So thank you very much for that. I'm sure the listeners will have done as well. So if anybody wants to, to contact you, is it LinkedIn the best the best method for that? Yeah, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. So please um, sort of, yeah, connect if you're not already. But if not, um, yeah, say hi on LinkedIn. So it's uh, Christian Lees Bell. You can also send me an email on uh, Christian at um, happyworkhub.com. That's Christian at happyworkhub.com. But yeah, LinkedIn's a good place because I'll be talking a lot about uh, yeah, management, uh, management practices and stress management as well. So look forward to talking to you, to everybody on that. Fantastic. Well, we'll put a blog post up with this as well, Christian. We'll embed the links in there to your LinkedIn and to your email address as well. So we'll have them there. But Christian Leesbell, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Psych for Business. For show notes, resources, and more, visit evolveassess.com.